You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Good morning. Please, please come back in and find your seats. We have a Redeemer. He is powerful in love. He has erased our sins. His name is mighty. His name is Jesus. Let's come before him in prayer. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus. We kneel before you, for you are worthy. You are God's own Son. You are the precious Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Holy One. When we are brought very low in our sin, we remain still in your hand. David reminds us in the Psalms that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. For you are with us. When we are feeling grievous loss, you are with us still. In Exodus, Moses reminds us that we were like slaves in a land that is far from our home, the Lord's people wandering in the land of Egypt. But God has redeemed us. He has redeemed his people. He has brought us into his courts. Lord, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us for our envy and greed. Forgive us for our lust and pride. Forgive us for our hatred and failure to love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We know our Redeemer lives. For while we were still weak, at the right time you sent your Son to die for the ungodly. In this you showed your love for us. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. O precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. In Jesus' name, we thank you for your redemptive plan in our lives. Amen. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate you praying for us and uh, Novaris. Well, good morning. My name is Josh. I uh, know most of you guys, met a few. Um, today, we are going to be kicking off a new series in the book of uh, Matthew. I'm sorry, the book of Ruth. We just finished up. <laughs> You're like, yes! After two years, we're finally back in the book of Matthew. We just decided to start all over. You know, we're like, that was so good. That was so good. We're going to do it all over again. Just going to. We're just, yeah, all the sermon prep's done. This is, uh, this is really convenient. Um, we're in the book of Ruth. It's a new series in the book of Ruth, four-week series, uh, so it's not going to be, uh, not going to be too long, but we're really looking forward to, uh, to something new here. Um, this is not working. If you could, like, try to get my sermon notes up, I'd appreciate it. Otherwise, we're just going to wing it today. Um, 
So one of the cool things about the, the book, uh, at the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus actually talks about the book of Ruth. I don't know if you guys realize this or not, but you guys know the story of the road to Emmaus. Jesus raises from the dead, and before he ascends, he has a couple of different interactions with people. Uh, one of those interactions is with two of his disciples, and it's on the road to Emmaus, and he shows up to them and starts talking with them, and they don't realize who he is at first. And then he, they realize that he's Jesus. And look what he says here in, uh, in Luke chapter 24. We're going to put it up here on the screen. Uh, Jesus, while walking with the disciples, says, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have, have spoken. Next verse. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning him, uh, himself. So Jesus says that in the, in the whole of the Old Testament, of which Ruth is a part, these, uh, of which Ruth is a part, everything testifies to him as Savior and witnesses to him as Savior. Now, there are many other themes throughout the Old Testament aside from Jesus Christ. But when we read the Old Testament, we believe there's a primary theme that all of the Old Testament is pointing toward Jesus, right? This is called a historical redemptive approach to reading the Scriptures. So then, the placement of Ruth is really important in for looking at Ruth to then point toward to Jesus. Now, in the Jewish Bible, Ruth was placed after Proverbs. So, what, what does Proverbs end with? Proverbs 31 woman, right? And then you have Ruth, right? Ruth would be a good example of the Proverbs 31 woman. So, the Jews place Ruth as a, a moral story. It was placed in the wisdom literature. It was how to live morally, right? But in our Bible, Ruth is placed in the books of history between judges and kings very intentionally because all of those stories are pointing towards something that is greater to come. Now, the problem with, uh, or the challenge, I would say, with a book like Ruth is there's a lot of really good life lessons that you can learn from the book of Ruth, right? You can read Ruth through the lens of how to, have, how to find a good marriage partner, Okay? in Ruth and Boaz. You can read Ruth through the lens of uh, the struggle of being a woman in a patriarchal society. You can read Ruth through the lens of uh, how to have close friendships and commitment in those friendships. But we are going to read the book of Ruth through this historical redemptive lens, believing that it is pointing toward Jesus. Now, God, He is concerned about morality. He's concerned about virtuous living, which both uh, are going to be, we're going to examine those in the characters of of Ruth and, and Boaz. But ultimately, the book of Ruth is about God. And it's about how God comes and meets with these rather ordinary characters. So we have to remember that the book of Ruth is not a biography about Ruth. The book of Ruth is not even about Ruth or Naomi or Boaz. The book of Ruth is about God and what we can learn about God. So as we read it, and I would challenge you to do that, it's only four chapters, sit down and read it, but read it through this lens of what are we learning about God through this book. So we're going to read this together. We're just going to read Ruth chapter one today. I'm going to invite you guys to stand up as always. We stand in honor of God's word. We stand and to want to listen and submit ourselves to the word, and then we're going to have a word of prayer afterwards, and it's up here on the screens if you would like to follow along. 
So Ruth 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left without her two sons. With her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her sister, with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? So she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come before you uh, thanking you for this uh, testimony about you that was written so many years ago. I pray that uh, your scriptures would come alive to us today as we can easily uh, empathize with the characters in this story. And as we walk through their struggles and their journey of faith and trust in you, I pray also that you would continue to use this text as we walk through our journey of faith and trust in you. Uh, And ultimately, uh, all of this would point toward Jesus and would point toward your amazing grace over us. We would ask this in your name. Amen. You guys have a seat.
So uh, the book of Ruth is written in a time in the life of Israel uh, during the time of the judges. But yet at the end of the book of Ruth, it alludes to the dynasty of King David. So that means the book was actually written during the time of David, but it harkens back to a time of the judges before Israel had any kings. So when you read the book of Judges, um, you can't read it and say things are going really great for Israel, right? And we were, a couple of us were even talking this past week or last week about the end of the book of Judges. I mean, it, it's just nasty. I mean, the, the last few chapters of Judges, there's some stories in there where you're just appalled at what the people of Israel are doing to one another. Israel, Israelite society is disintegrating. A moral chaos is prevailing. The Levites are no longer teaching the law to God's people, and God's people are intermarrying with the surrounding nations, which he told them never to do, as an act of a disobedience, and they're facing the consequences of those choices. Now, in the end of the book of Judges, there's this one phrase that's repeated four times. And any time something is repeated in the Bible, it's because God really wants you to remember it. And this is the phrase. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Right? So in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. This is the, the, the setting for now the book of Ruth. And it helps us to understand why life is so hard for Ruth and Naomi and her family. It's a time period of just unfettered self-pleasure like we see through, through Judges. Now, the interesting thing is when I was reading through this, it started reminding me back to earlier time periods in the Bible. So when I, when I heard that phrase about everyone did what was right in his own eyes, it reminded me of life before the flood, right? You remember what, what, uh, what, what God said to Moses, that the intentions of a man's heart was evil continually? That's the reason that he wiped out wiped out the earth. Well, the reason that this is so familiar is because the Bible is written in a framework, okay? God's a really creative writer, and so he uses a framework to write the story of the Bible, and the framework of the Bible is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. We talk about this quite a bit at Red Sea. The Bible starts with the creation in the Garden of Eden. There's a fall. God redeems his people uh, through that fall, uh, it's killing of an animal in the Garden of Eden. And then he restores Adam and Eve. Well, there's a fall once again through Cain and Abel. But then there's always an act of, re- of redemption and restoration. Uh, there's a fall uh, in the flood, but God redeems the people through Noah, and he restores them through the new covenant, right? And, and over this theme repeats over and over and over again. So we're in the middle of one of these themes because God has taken a group of people. He's created them into a nation. He's brought them out of slavery and into the promised land, right? He's, re- he's restored them and, and redeemed them. Well, what happens as soon as they get into the promised land, the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua divides up the land among all the people. They're finally there. And the book of Judges, it goes downhill real fast, right? You see this immediate fall. You see this immediate disobedience from the people of Israel. So Ruth takes place in the middle of this framework between fall and redemption. God is going to rescue his people. Now, we're not going to see a rescue of his people as a, as a whole nation until the next book, which is 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and First and Second Kings is the story of the kings of Israel. 
And in a time when no one ruled Israel and everyone what was doing right in their own eyes, it needed a king to come and bring order to this chaos to bring some sense of restoration. So then we read Ruth in light of this framework. Ruth is a glimmer of hope in the midst of calamity and sin and mess. So for us as modern readers, as we look into the text, it shouldn't be hard for us to imagine this time period, right? I mean, the the whole idea of post-modernity, post-modernism, where we live today, is this idea that there is no absolute truth and there is no absolute morality. You know what that is? Each one doing what is right in their own eyes. It's the exact same time as Ruth. And you look at the consequences of that in the book of Ruth and in the book of, of Judges, but we can see it today. We live in a society where people do what is right in their own, their own eyes. And aren't we all feeling the effects of that? Right? I mean, how many marriages have ended because a spouse did what was right in his or her own eyes? How many of us as kids have been wounded by our parents because a parent did what was right in their own eyes? How many of us as an employee have suffered because a boss did what was right in their own eyes? We, we, can, we can relate. We can empathize with Ruth and with these characters in this story. We live in a time period where the majority of people do not believe in a meta-narrative, in a, in a grand sweeping story of God for creation and redemption and restoration. Now, for those people who are not in Christ, those people who are not Christians, everyone has something that they lean on in the midst of life sufferings, right? All of us have a, a worldview that helps hold up the, the challenges of life, something that we can turn to when life throws us a curveball. We all suffer in, in many different ways. But for those people who are not followers in Jesus Christ, many times what they'll look to is, um, uh, let's say, politics. Politics is something that we look to bring chaos or bring order to all this chaos that we feel. And sometimes we elevate politics to be God. Um, sometimes people look to the self, you know, the meditation and the power of the individual to to learn something through these circumstances and come out on the other end of a better person, right? That's a, that's a worldview. That's something that you turn to when life does not make sense. And, and some of you may be here today because your worldview has started to collapse. Maybe life has thrown you a curveball. You're experiencing suffering of some form from another, and you're looking for answers. You're looking for hope. You're looking for a a story that's greater than yours that will help you make sense of all that you are experiencing. And there's a good chance that you may be even suffering today for one reason or another. And that suffering there's a big chance isn't because of just the choices that you've made. It's the choices that others have made. And you're now feeling the effects of those and the weight of those. I want to let you know if you're here searching, you've come to the right place. 
You've come to the the rock, the place where uh, the foundation for life and faith and our worldview can be built. And I pray that you would stick with this series through the book of Ruth. If you come inquiring, there's times in this series that you're going to be offended by things that you hear. That's because the gospel's offensive at times. But stick with it, ask questions, and hear from God. Many of you in this room today are Christians. And you're feeling the same effects of this cycle. You're just feeling the weight of the world. Uh, Lately, even greater, I've, I've, I've wanted to go and hide. You know, I've just wanted to check out and, and not have to deal with just all the crap that's out there that's, that I'm experiencing from my own sin, that I'm experiencing from other people's sins. We need to know as God's people that it is no coincidence that what is happening in your life right now and what is happening in my life right now in the book of Ruth is how God is going to talk to us through those things. So all of us, whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, there are things going on that I believe God is going to speak powerfully to us through this book of Ruth. And I pray that as we study it and we read through Ruth and we look at Jesus, you will encounter the living God. So Ruth, the first section is in verses 1 through 5. And we're meant to read the book of Ruth in this narrative and empathize and sympathize with the characters, uh, with Naomi, with Ruth, with Elimelech, with Malon, and with Chilon. Now, it's interesting because Elimelech and Naomi are said to live in Bethlehem. They're in the promised land, right? This is the place where God is, is taking care of his people. Well, in the promised land, there's a famine, That's not good, right? I mean, Bethlehem means house of bread. There's a famine in the house of bread. If there's a famine in the house of bread, God is doing something. And and it doesn't say explicitly in the text, but we can kind of read into it that there's been some type of covenantal disobedience. We can see that in the book of Judges. The fact that they didn't wipe out the other nations, that they're marrying these other nations, as we will see here, uh, that they're not listening to the law, the law, therefore they're not participating in the sacrificial system. There's all types of consequences that come for God's covenantal people when they're disobedient to the covenant, and especially in the Old Testament. We live in a different covenant now in the New Testament, in the, in the, new, uh, the new covenant, so it's not the same for us, but we can read into the text and we can see this. So it's possible that there's this famine because of, of covenantal disobedience. Well, Elimelech does something really interesting. He decides to leave Bethlehem and go to another country to look for food. Now, Elimelech's name means my God, my king is God. Okay? If your name, my king is God, then you would think you wouldn't go anywhere outside of the promised land, right? But my king is God decides to leave because he doesn't like what's going on. Like he's he's not happy with his circumstances, so he leaves and he takes his family. And it's not even the fact that he leaves. Look at where he goes. Elimelech leads his family to Moab. Well, what's, what's the big deal about that? Well, not only is Moab outside of the promised land, Moab is, is, a, is a, a pagan people. When the people of Israel were journeying from Egypt to the promised land, they passed through Moab. You can read about this at the end of the book of Exodus. And as they're on their journey, the king of Moab sees them coming and says, I I know who those people are. I hear what they did to Egypt. Let's curse those people. And so he hires kind of a, a, a necromancer to come and cast a curse upon the people of Israel. Well, in turn, God, really weird, through the necromancer, curses Moab. 
and says, for 10 generations, you're cursed because you refuse to help the people of Israel by not giving them bread, by not giving them hospitality. Okay? So this is really interesting. Elimelech and Naomi leave house of bread for lack of bread and go to people who would not give bread. I don't know why, but that's just weird. And it's kind of cool. But it shows that God is up to something. He's doing something in this text. Well, on top of that, not only does he lead his people, uh, I mean his, uh, his family, to this cursed nation, he encourages his sons to marry Moabites, right? And so they both marry. One marries Orpah, one marries Ruth. Well, this was a grave sin in Israel. So it says a lot about Elimelech's faith, that he would encourage this in the midst of this famine and disobedience to God. I think he's just self-preserving. He's saying God has abandoned us, just like I believe Naomi says later. Now, we don't know that. We don't get any words from Elimelech. But through his actions, we can see he doesn't believe that God is a promise-keeping God in the midst of all of this suffering. They're just going to have to get by. Well, as the story goes on, all three of these men die. Now, that's, that's brutal, right? There's a famine. They left. They now get to this land. They've married wives, and Elimelech dies first, and then his two sons die. And we have no reason. I mean, we have no, no understanding why the text doesn't say. But once again, I think we can read in covenantal disobedience. The fact that they're married for 10 years and they don't have any children. You got married to reproduce and to have kids, right? You didn't wait till your 30s when all your finances were worked out and have a couple of kids. They, they, they got on it. 10 years later, they're not able to have kids. That says something about this punishment that Naomi believes that they are under from the hand of God. So all three of them die, and then at that point, the text shifts to our main character and the main focus of this message, which is going to be Naomi. Now, Naomi has lost her husband, and she's lost her two sons. Now, that tragic loss, I can't imagine. But on top of the loss of relationship, she's lost provision. She is now a widow in a foreign land of a people that hate Israel. She is in a really, really tough place. Everything's been taken from Naomi. Uh, some commentators would call her uh, a, a little more of a modern-day Job, right? Job takes place in the patriarchal society in the time of Abraham. This is now in the time of Judges. So she's a modern-day Job. We don't get any implications from the text itself that Naomi did anything wrong. It, what you, you kind of get implied is that she is facing the consequences of these other people's choices. I believe Elimelech did what was right in his own eyes, just like in the book of Judges, and now she is facing the consequences of that covenantal disobedience to God. Well, as the story continues, Naomi decides to return to the land of Judah uh, because she hears that the famine has ended. Praise God, the house of bread now has bread. So she decides to do something really pragmatic here. She decides to send her daughters back to their Moabite families. She goes to them, and she actually, it's really interesting, she plays a blessing over them. 
and she blesses them to return them to their idol-worshiping families. That's a, that's a little ironic. We should read much irony in that statement. It says a lot about who Naomi believes God is. Now, part of her pragmatism is Naomi is just too old to have kids again. Naomi could go to Bethlehem. She could meet a nice man. She could have kids. Those kids could grow up and then marry or redeem Orpah and Ruth, although that would take a really long time. And apparently, Naomi, even if she's old enough to do that, Ruth and Orpah would be too old by the time that that they waited. So she's like, it doesn't make sense for you guys to stay with me. So go back to your your own families instead of, of staying with me. But even more than pragmatism, Naomi, and I believe this is a point that, that, that it is meant to be drilled in by the author. Naomi believes that she is being punished by God, and she will be punished by God indefinitely. So then we get a glimpse of Naomi's theology about God. Naomi believes that the Lord is capable to bless those who have done no wrong, like Orpah and Ruth. But when it comes to her own case, for whatever reason, Naomi does not believe that there is any blessing in the future for her. I mean, look at what she says there in verse 13. She says, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me which I think is true. I think Naomi and the nation of Israel were all suffering because of covenantal disobedience. I think they had broken God's rules and they were suffering the consequences of that rules, whether it's the famine or death or childlessness, right? That makes sense. And, and we can, we can get, wrap our mind around that theology. But she goes even farther than that. I want us to look here at what Naomi says. So there's the interaction with Ruth that happens in the text, which I'm going to come back to. But what happens is Ruth and Naomi, they go to Bethlehem. They, they come here. They're not warmly welcomed, which would make sense for these foreigners coming out. And they say, hey, isn't that Naomi that left 10 years ago? Where's, uh, where's Elimelech? Where's, where's your kids? Where's your family that you're supposed, to, you're supposed to come back with? And look at what she says here. She says, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Lord Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, Naomi's name means sweet or pleasant, and she changes it to Mara, which means bitter. So we see the contrast, sweet to bitter. She left 10 years ago empty, or at least she had her family, and she comes back with even, with even less. She believes she is truly returning empty. And it's interesting because on one hand, I really think Naomi gets God's sovereignty, right? The fact that she would believe that hand, her hand of God's against her. She's not saying that fate is happening to me. She's saying that God's hand is working against me right here. So I'm going to call my, my name bitter. But by changing her name, and I think more tellingly, by sending those, girl, those girls away from her back to their pagan nations, she believes there is no hope in the future. That God may be great, God is just not good. Okay? 
I think that's really the theology of Naomi. God is great. God's sovereign. Sure, God's in control. He's just not a good God. And I'm just going to suffer the rest of my life and be alone. So why don't you guys just get as far away from me as you possibly can? Now, what's interesting is the text doesn't tell us that God was angry with Naomi. So I think she was therefore mistaken to associate God's goodness with her circumstances. And I think this is a point that we really need to lean into and really think about. And it's going to say a lot about what we believe about God. Now, even in the Old Testament, when the people suffered the consequences of covenantal disobedience, God always restored them, didn't he? I mean, you you read back, this isn't the first time the nation of Israel has been disobedient. Over and over again, it's this cycle of creation, fall, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. God has always restored his people, and God will always restore his people because God is a promise-keeping God. But Naomi does not believe that to be true. That's at least what the text implies about her circumstances. Now, hear me, guys. Hear me, church. I don't want to undermine Naomi's sufferings. I do not want to undermine her grief or the grief that is going on in, in your life. Like Naomi, particularly being a female in a patriarchal society, we still live, many of you as females, in a patriarchal society. And you are constantly facing the choices that other people are making towards you, right? Husbands, parents, jobs, just sin. Our bodies are constantly breaking down. We are suffering. But to think that God has no purpose in that suffering except to just be mean is a poor understanding of who God is. And the cool thing is, because we live under the new covenant, God doesn't even punish us anymore. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he took all of the punishment upon him. So God no longer punishes for covenantal disobedience. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't discipline us like a good father disciplines his kids, right? Hebrews 13, what father doesn't discipline his kids? But God does it out of love for us. You are not being punished. I just went through a season of, uh, of just real discouragement, um, and, and I, I just, when it, when it, what it really came down to is I, I was processing this with, with Jim one day, and uh, just about all my discouragement, things I weren't happy with, and he said, you know, it sounds like you're just not happy with how God is providing for you. And I was like, thanks, buddy. <laughs> right? But it was true. I just wasn't happy with how God was choosing to provide for me. So then I had this shift, and I stopped saying, why isn't God meeting my needs in the way that I think he should meet them? I started thinking, what is it that God is teaching me? Maybe I'm just under discipline in a good way, because we're always under discipline by God, and we will always be under discipline by God, because he loves us. Paul processes, the Apostle Paul processes through some of this in his own life. I mean, God had used them to do some amazing works, right? 
He lived in the new, in the new covenant. But look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10 about his suffering. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Praise God. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. That's a proper gospel response to the sufferings of life. Naomi, on the other hand, she's just struggling to transcend her circumstances and to trust God. And by sending her daughters away, it's not only unmotherly, I believe. She's sending them back to these pagan families to worship those gods. That's what she says. And the first commandment was, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I mean, that's what got Israel in this whole mess in the first place. But more than that, it just shows that she doesn't trust God to provide for her. She's following human reason. She's not following the God who led the people of Israel out of slavery and through the wilderness and into the promised land. So then the question for us today is, do you view your current circumstances, the sins that have been committed toward you, the sins that you've committed, do you see them as part of God's overall story plan? If the book of Ruth is a story of God's goodness, then that means that he's in control and he's got something good planned for the future. Namely, God's good plan is his redemptive story over all of the world and a plan to perfect his people. The challenge in walking by faith is that it takes a lifetime, right? Paul even talked about this too. He said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do we look at our circumstances as this light momentary affliction that is preparing an eternal weight of glory. See, God doesn't enter into a relationship with us to give us everything that we want. God, or, God enters into a relationship with us to give us everything we need. And He is giving us everything we need. He wants to draw us to our, Himself. And I believe that God allows these trials to happen in our life so that we will turn to Him and find our security, our contentment, our peace, and our joy. And God will use other people's sins and our sins and even just discipline to lead us to Himself and to lead us to peace because He knows that's the only way we're ever going to find it. And, and what I'm asking you guys to do is in the middle of, of this crap that's going on in the life, in the middle of these struggles, and you're saying, I don't see God in the midst of this. God gives us Ruth as this glimmer of hope in the midst of darkness. 
Because it's, a, it's an amazing story where God is going to show up powerfully for Ruth and even more powerfully for Naomi and to redeem them because God has a plan. So now let's turn our attention briefly to Ruth. I don't want to talk too much about Ruth because she's going to be the main focus of next week's text. But look at Ruth's response. Now compare Naomi to Ruth. They both were facing the same um, losses. Naomi lost a father. I mean, a, a husband. Ruth lost a father. Naomi lost children. Ruth lost a husband. Right? They, they're both feeling the weight of that loss. But look at Naomi, uh, Ruth's response here in verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Now, the, the covenant to relationship with Naomi is amazing, right? I mean, her commitment to Naomi during these hard times, that's good stuff. That'll preach, Right? But more than that, I think what we need to see is Ruth's understanding of who God is. A a Moabite, right? She gets God. We don't need to undermine the choice that, that Ruth is making to commit herself to Naomi. See, Ruth is not only changing her her family setting, she's not only leaving the place she knew, she's changing her nationality. To, for a Moabite to marry an Israelite would have been a stretch. But it happened in order to join nations together. But for a Moabite to convert to becoming an, being an Israelite, that means that she severs all ties with her paternal family. Ruth can't go back after this. Why would she make, why would she do that? Why would she face being ostracized in a new community with this baggage of Naomi, she had to encounter the God of Israel. When you think about the reality of the decision that she's making, she knew that God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, provided for his people. Now, when I read the text, I don't get the impression that Naomi or Elimelech were overly evangelistic. Okay? I really don't. I think they did what was right in their own eyes. But you know what Ruth saw? Ruth saw the provisions of Yahweh. I mean, she heard the stories, right? Of this God that provides for his people in his sovereign timing. I mean, he provided a child for Abraham and Sarah after a lifetime of waiting. And then even after he told them they were going to have a kid, he made them wait another 10 years. Right? What about Rebecca? Rebecca wanted to have kids so desperately that she didn't, and she, and she struggled with that. And she wrestled with God. But what did God do? He gave Rebecca twins in, her own, in, in God's own timing. 
What about the relationship of Jacob and Esau? They were a lifetime apart, and God used that lifetime to then reconcile them back together. How about Joseph? He had a nice, easy life, sold into slavery by his brothers, wrongfully sent to prison by Potiphar's wife so that he could spend two years there to then interpret a dream of Pharaoh that would then rescue all the people from famine. That's cool. What about the people of Israel? 400 years in slavery for God to come in through Moses and rescue them through the Passover, lead them through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of their stiff neckness to lead them into the promised land. Ruth knew that God was a God who provided for his people. He is a promise keeping God. And in a time period when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, it's Ruth who decides to be under the sovereign hand of God, I believe, willingly. And you have to notice the covenantal language that Ruth uses. When God covenants with Abraham, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. What does Ruth say? I will be your people and your God's going to be my God. She understood the covenant. Now, here's the crazy thing. This just gives me goosebumps. If Ruth thought that God was going to provide for them in some mysterious way in the midst of their hard circumstances, that he was going to keep his promise, she had no idea what that looked like. Can you imagine if she knew about Jesus? Right? I mean, she, she knew that God would provide some way, but she had no idea that God was going to be gracious and compassionate to his people. One day, God would not only provide food for a famine, he would provide an answer to, to this, this messed up world that we all live in. He would send his son to come and die for all of this, doing what is right in our own eyes that we've all participated in. And he would pay the ultimate penalty for all of our sin and rebellion against him. And then in vindication, he would raise him from the grave to sit at the right hand of the Father. And what is Jesus doing right now? He's mediating for all of us. Right? Feel that. The God, the creator of the universe, the atonement for sin that was raised from the dead sits at the right hand and mediates the grace of God through the Holy Spirit to all of us. God is good. Amen? And we have to just keep saying that over and over and over again. And so I, I want you guys to take those circumstances, to take all the suffering, all the pain that's been committed against you, and to say, God is good in the midst of this pain. And to sing those songs that we sang, oh my gosh, dude, those were good songs. And to be able to sing them in the midst of suffering, to sing about our God's faithfulness on his people. See, we have a choice today. And that choice is to respond to life like Naomi or to respond to life like Ruth. So when we come to these tables, which we're about to do and to, and to take communion, we come not bitter, but we come rejoicing and trusting because we know our God is a God that provides. And we once again, we attach ourselves to that God and we remember the grace that's been given us through Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite Christian and Alyssa back up here. There's a, a passage of scripture that I want to put up here on the screen. It's Romans 8, 28. And it says, and we, 
these people who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purposes. All things, right? All things work together for good for those who are called according to those purposes. And I pray that I will get to experience that goodness in this life. I know I'm going to get it in the next one, right? I know God's going to provide and God's going to show up. So then we are a people who hold fast, who hold, who hold steadfast in the midst of life. So right now, if you're a believer, if you've uh, repented of your sins and confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to come and to take communion and to experience that grace all over again. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and, and you've come in because of life and just the weight of life upon you and, and, and your foundation is crumbling and your worldview is crumbling beneath you, I pray you would, like Ruth, come to the God who saves. Attach yourself to the one who always keeps his promises. A God who is good and is steadfast and is loving, giving to his people generation after generation after generation. We're going to take the next 30 seconds. We're just going to think about this passage of Scripture. I want to put it back up here on the screen. Put Romans 8, 28. And think about how God is using your all things to build his trust in you. And so let's just take a minute to let that kind of sink in. And then let's respond to God. We're going to sing a song, It Is Well With My Soul. And if you know the context of this song, it was written by a modern day Job, a guy that lost his entire family. And then he wrote this song in response to that loss. So let's do the same thing. Let's take those circumstances and let's say, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, we thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ that's been given to us. We thank you for this, this picture of your kindness and your generosity that Ruth and Naomi could never comprehend. I thank you that in the book of Ruth, as our story continues, we, we begin to see your faithfulness. And just as Ruth cried out to you and latched herself to you, we do the same thing and we look forward to your goodness, God. Blow us away. Surprise us, Father, with how you're going to show up for us. We know you will. We thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.